If you're new here, and I recognize that some of you may be new here, maybe this is your first week or you just started coming here within the last few weeks. I've talked to some of you like that. My name is Adam Bowers. I'm the senior pastor at First Free Church, and welcome. We're so glad that you are here with us, that you've chosen to spend today worshiping God with us here today. The first question I have for you is, have you ever taken a long road trip? Who's taking a long road trip? Anybody? Okay, good, good. Don't you do all kinds of different things to keep yourself occupied on that road trip? Like you sing special songs, right? Any of you watch movies, hopefully if you're not driving? Uh, Read books, again, not driving preferably. You play games, you do different things on long road trips, right? Well, I want to talk to you at the beginning of the message today about a man who was on a very long road trip. It was about 1,500 miles from where he lived as a royal official in the kingdom of Cush in Africa 2,000 years ago to the city of Jerusalem further north from him in Israel. This man, a royal official, an African man, had learned about the Jewish God from pockets of Jewish people that lived in his country. And so he headed on this long road trip up north to Jerusalem, the place where the Jewish people worshiped God the most so that he could also worship there. And while he was there at the temple, he decided it would be important for this long road trip back to get some reading material for the chariot home. So he picked up a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. And he got in his chariot and he headed back. And as he was back on his way to Cush, he was reading this scroll of Isaiah. Now, the the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, it's a fantastic book. It's all about how God uh, worked with the people of Israel and invested in them and cared for them and provided for them and protected them. And then they rejected him and he was going to discipline them, but he was one day going to send someone who would make everything right again. That's sort of a snapshot view of the book of Isaiah. But this was all very confusing to this royal official from Cush. In fact, he got to one point in the scroll of Isaiah where it actually read kind of like a riddle, and it really confused him. Here's what it said. It said in Acts 8.32 is where we read this quote, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, And as a lamb is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth. And he wondered, who was Isaiah talking about? Someone that was led to be killed but was quiet about it? Someone who was humiliated and received no justice? Was Isaiah talking about himself? Was he talking about someone who had come later? And then suddenly, as this royal official was in the chariot reading these very words, a man ran up next to the chariot and just started listening in on his, conversa- or on his reading, overhearing. Now, I don't know about you, but I really don't like it when I'm reading something and somebody just sort of pops up behind me and is reading over my shoulder. It's kind of an awkward feeling, right? But he evidently was reading this out loud, so the man who ran next to him was able to hear everything he was saying, and he understood that this man was confused. Now, if you know this story, From the book of Acts, it's a true story. Philip the evangelist was told by God to go to this particular road at this particular time, and he wasn't told why, but now he knew. As he ran next to this chariot, he could hear this man, this royal official reading Isaiah, and he said to him, hey, do you understand what you are reading? And the royal official said to Philip, how can I understand this unless someone explains it to me? So Philip got up into the chariot 
and started with this passage in Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah, the Bible says, and explained all about Jesus to this royal official. He explained how Jesus came to earth, why he had to die, that he rose from the dead, and that he now invites people to follow him. Philip told this man about Jesus' last instructions to his disciples before he left this earth. It's in Matthew 28. It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, the royal official believed everything that Philip told him. He believed that Jesus came to die for his sins and paid for his debt. He believed that he rose from the dead and conquered sin and death. He learned that Jesus had instructed for people who believed in him to be baptized. That is to be dunked underwater in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He believed all of that. And so they were passing a pool of water and the royal official said to Philip, hey, there's water right there. What's keeping me from just being baptized right now? Let's do it. Let's get on with it. And so they get down out of the chariot. They go down into the water and Philip right then and there baptized the royal official. It's a true story from Acts chapter eight. Now, if you grew up in church, or if you've been around church for a long time, and when I mention baptism, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some kind of a pool of water like right there, or, or you go out and you get dunked on water, something like that, I want you to do me a favor and just put that Christian experience aside for a moment and imagine that you are coming across this phenomenon for the very first time. So Jesus says, when you believe in him, you need to get dunked underwater. Philip hears this and says, let's do it. No questions asked. Like, yeah, I'm ready to get dunked underwater. Let's do it. I believe in Jesus. Let's do it. Now, doesn't that seem a little strange to you? Isn't it just a little bit odd that the first thing we would want to do when someone says they believe in Jesus is dunk them underwater? I mean, just to, again, put aside all of that experience. Those of you that are used to this, it's normal to you. It's ingrained in your psyche. This is just what we do. Why? Why would we do such a strange, bizarre kind of thing? Can you imagine if we did this for other groups you decided to join? NFL draft is this week. Can you picture it? Somebody's name gets called, they join a team, they give them the hat, and they dunk them in the pool. That's kind of strange, isn't it? How many of you, and admit it, how many of you are part of a book club? Anybody? Part of, book clubs are cool. Anybody part of a book club? Can you imagine if you joined a book club and they're just like, all right, pool's out back. <laughs> Welcome to the team. You get a new job. You show up all spiffy in your suit and tie. They take you to HR, do all the onboarding stuff, and then they take you out to the company pool. Welcome to the company. Here you go. Boom. It's just a little bit strange. Some of the things we do as Christians, and let's just be honest and own this, are kind of strange, right? We have very particular styles of music that we're really into. We eat tiny bits of bread and little cups of juice once a month. Some people do it once a week, believe it or not. It's a little odd, right? Why do we do that? We often close our eyes and bow our heads before we eat a meal. And some of you, some of you weirdos even do that in public, right? You're out at a restaurant and all of a sudden you just, boom, like you're smelling the food. Why do we, what's that all about? And admit it, when you get an amazing parking space, how many of you thank Jesus? 
just like, that was just for me. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. I was late. That was on me, but you took care of it, right? We're big fans, for some reason, of animated vegetables. It's just one of our things. It's just one of our things. All right, let's own it. We're strange. We're unusual people. Everybody's a little bit weird in some way. Every group's got quirks and weird things, but there's a reason for these things that we do. There really is, and honestly, a lot of us don't even know it. On Friday, we talked about the reasons behind the cross. Why did Jesus have to die that way? What was the significance of that? That was Friday. Today, we're going to talk about the reasons behind baptism. This strange thing that maybe you've never even thought of before, most of us, when we were told we needed to be baptized after we became a follower of Jesus, didn't, didn't get some kind of a lesson on, now here's where this comes from and why it's important and what the significance is. That's what we're going to talk about today. How did this bizarre practice of dunking people underwater become spiritually important to us today? We're going to ask three questions and hopefully answer them. Those three questions are, where did baptism come from? What does baptism mean for us today? And should I be baptized? Now, I know some of you are just here for Easter, and thank you for coming. But you may be wondering, why on earth are we talking about baptism on Easter Sunday? And trust me, if you stay with us, you're going to see how this all ties in. Baptism is a perfect thing to talk about on Easter Sunday. Before we get into it, I'm going to ask you to do one more odd little thing that we do, and bow your heads with me, close your eyes if you would, let's focus on God and pray to Him right now. Heavenly Father, Your Word is true. We're going to talk about it here and learn more about it, and even learn how archaeology and history support and, and lend credibility to what You have told us in Your Word. We're going to learn some history and background and context to some of the things You have told us to do. But what's more important than any of that is what you want to teach us in our hearts today. So we come open, Lord, open to hear, receptive for your message. We pray that you would speak to us, that you would work through your Holy Spirit to illuminate these words to us, help us to understand them, and maybe touch our hearts in different ways for what you want us to learn today. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the first question we're going to ask today is where did baptism come from? Where did this strange practice of dunking people underwater become a spiritual thing? Back in the days of the Old Testament, before Jesus, before the Romans, that first half or first two-thirds of your Bible there, back when the Israelites were just coming out of the nation of Egypt and being established as their own nation, God gave these people some rules for how they were supposed to live and how they were supposed to function. And some of those rules were designed to keep them safe. Some of those rules were designed to keep them healthy. Some of those rules were designed to help them get along. And some of those rules were designed to remind them that they were not pure people, that they were people who made bad choices, thought bad thoughts, that they were not pure. They were impure. So some of God's rules were intended to remind them of that. They needed to be cleaned. They needed to be purified to have a relationship with God. So one of the practices that God gave them to remind them of this was ritual bathing. And we don't talk about this a lot in churches today because it's just not something that we do. We don't do ritual bathing. But this was actually a very important practice in ancient Judaism. And believe it or not, it still is today for many Jewish people around the world. I want to give you one example. This is from Leviticus 14.8. It says, The persons being purified 
must then wash their clothes, shave off all their hair, and bathe themselves in water. Then they will be ceremonially clean and may return to the camp. Here's another example. Numbers 19, all those who touch a dead human body will be ceremonially unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves on the third and seventh days with the water of purification. Then they will be purified. Now let me tell you something about the water that was used for these ceremonial cleansings. They had a specific phrase for it. In some Bible translations, it'll be translated as pure water or fresh water, but here's the Hebrew phrase. Are you willing to learn a little bit of Hebrew this morning? The first word that you need to say is Hayim. Can you say Hayim? Hayim. Does anybody have a guess as to what Hayim means? I hear a little bit out there, but I'm not sure if anybody said it. Maybe you did. Anyone ever watch Fiddler on the Roof? To life, to life, Lahayim. There's a little more of a consonant sound added today. It was a little less so back in ancient days. Hayim means life. Hayim or Hayim means life. Everybody say Hayim. Hayim. All right, you got it. The next word is really easy. Mayim. Say Mayim. Say Hayim Mayim. All right, you got it. Now, we're probably all butchering that pronunciation, and I know I am too. But Hayim Mayim. Hayim means life. Mayim means water. So Haim Maim means life water or living water. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Jesus used it frequently, living water. This is what was supposed to be used for ritual purification. Water that sat around in pools would become stagnant and unclean very quickly. So water that came from a naturally flowing source, like a spring or a river or rainwater or something like that that was flowing through a channel, that was called Haim Maim, living water. It was like water directly from God. It was fresh, it was natural, it was clean, it was pure, it was crisp. This is the water that was to be used in ceremonial cleansing. You could direct this water through channels, but you could never pick it up or draw it with a bucket or carry it with human hands because as soon as you did, it stopped to be haim maim, living water. It was now water that had been assisted somehow by human hands, but as long as it was flowing naturally, this was living water. Over the centuries, the Jewish religious leaders added a lot of extra rules to what God had given the people initially. So there were rules, for instance, about priests when they were entering the temple, they were supposed to bathe themselves completely in this living water. Well, along the way, there there was a group of people who eventually became the Pharisees who decided that there are a lot of these rules that, that are really kind of for the priests and the Levites, but we think it would be better and God would like us more if everyone did those. So a lot of these principles and commands, including ritual bathing, got expanded and added to more things. And so what happened was they said that you have anyone, before they come onto the temple compound, they have to be ritually bathed in living water. So all around the temple, even today, you will find these baptismal pools where someone could be dipped down into living water. Now, for the Jewish people, they didn't use the term baptism. It wasn't a baptismal pool or anything like that. They used a different word. The word is mikvah. Can everybody say mikvah? A mikvah. And this is an example of a 2,000-year-old mikvah. Uh, I took that picture. That is just east of the temple today. 
a 2,000-year-old mikvah that was used so that people could walk down on one side, submerge themselves completely underwater. In fact, rabbinical instruction says that every single strand of hair needs to go under the water or it doesn't count. And then you come back up the other side. One side of the steps, you go down impure. The next side of the steps, you come up ritually pure. And so for most people, as they came to the temple, they would have to pay a small fee to use someone's public mikvah to become ceremonially clean so they could then walk into the temple. But for a lot of people, they had, they had to use this public one. For a few people, the wealthy few, they got to have a private mikvah in their home. Here's an example of what one of those would look like. This is in a particularly wealthy home in the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem, an area where a lot of wealthy uh, Jewish homes were found. This one might have been the home of a priest or a high priest. Very big compound that you can walk through. It's been kind of restored and turned into a museum. And uh, there were five mikvahs in this house of differing sizes and locations and different features to them. Some mikvahs you walk in on one side, you walk out the other side. Some mikvahs you walk down in and you come right back out the way you came on the steps, but on a different part of the steps. But the point was, this was so that you could become ritually pure, ceremonially clean before God so that you could enter into his presence and so that you could be with his people. If I had to guess... I would say that probably most of you have not had a very thorough lesson on Jewish ritual bathing until today. Is that, am I right on that? Not a common thing that we talk about in church. But here's the thing. In the world that Jesus came into, this was an incredibly important concept. In fact, if you don't understand this, it would be very difficult to understand some of Jesus' teaching. Because a lot of Jesus' teaching is about ritual bathing, living water, becoming clean before God. And here's this culture that believes in all of this ritual bathing and living water. Jesus is using that terminology, but we don't understand it. That's why we need to talk about it today. So if you want to follow along with us, we're going to be in John chapter 4. You can go to the Version Bible app if you want to. You'll find us there if you click on more and events, First Free Church will come up. All the verses for today are in there. You can follow along or use your Bible if you brought one and want to do that. John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to a woman at a well in Samaria, this region of the country that Jews didn't exactly like a whole lot. They didn't like the people there. There was a lot of bitter feuding between them. Um, sometimes it's said that Jews would never go through there. That's not really true. There's, there's plenty of evidence that Jews did go through Samaria. So Jesus was gone his way through Samaria. But the Jewish people didn't want to have a lot of dealings with Samaritans. So there were actually kind of rules uh, from rabbis about what to do when you went through Samaria. And they could eat the food, but regulations about how to do that and staying in their hotels and that kind of stuff. They didn't get along real well. That's the, that's the basis of it. And as Jesus was entering this certain village, he got outside to where the well was, the community well, and he sat down there and he told his disciples to go into the village and get him some Chick-fil-A. So they went in. It wasn't Sunday, so it's perfectly fine. His disciples left him there, and Jesus is sitting there all alone, and this woman comes out to get water from the well. Let's pick up right there in verse 7 of John chapter 4. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised 
For Jews refuse to drink with Sam- or have anything to do with Samaritans. So she said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you what? Living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides... Do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water? Because living water was better. How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Now pay close attention to what Jesus did here. We miss it so often when we read this story. Jesus took something that they were very familiar with, a concept they completely understood, the idea of living water tied to this ritual purity, becoming ceremonially clean before God, before you could enter his presence at the temple, and he gave this a new significance. He gave living water a new significance. Water was an incredibly valuable resource, but living water, that was even more special. And it was that bathing in living water that made them ceremonially pure before God. And yet Jesus is saying here, I'm going to put a fresh spring of that living water inside you. Now, let's be honest. If you put yourself in her shoes, how does that make any sense? That just sounds so strange. Because I know where living water comes from, and I know that At the temple and other places of worship, they have these pools where you can go down and bathe in living water. And you're saying you're going to put living water, this really awesome living water, inside of me, a spring of it that's bubbling up? How does that make any sense? I would be incredibly confused, and she was confused as well. But here's the thing. Jesus was not talking about actual water. He was talking about what that water represented to them. See, we don't know that if we don't know the history. But once we learn the history of these things, and we can see the archaeological aspect of it, we can go, wow, this must have had incredible significance to them. Living water, purification. He was going to offer purity without the ritual. He was going to offer holiness without the animal sacrifices. He was going to offer being right with God without going through some other priest. It wasn't the laws of Moses that we read earlier that were going to make someone ultimately pure, but it was Jesus who would come and fulfill those laws and bring them to a fulfillment that no one could have ever really imagined before. What is this going to be like? How is this going to work? It's so mysterious to them. I'm going to put living water inside of you. That law of Moses, it only pointed people to Jesus, to their need for Jesus. The apostle Paul would later say that that was the whole point of the law. That it was to show people that they can't live up to God's standard of purity on their own. And so Jesus came, lived a perfect life, was tempted in every way we are, never sinned, died on the cross, not to pay for his debt, because he didn't have one, but to pay for our debt so that we could be reconciled and pure before God. And so he was going to give us a spring of living water inside of us that made no sense to this woman. Maybe in much the the same way that Our practice of baptism might not make sense to someone who 
didn't grow up with it and didn't understand it. Jesus died on a cross in our place. I like the way that Bob Goff put it this week online. He posted this. Darkness fell. His friends scattered. Hope seemed lost. But heaven just started counting to three. I think that's so cool. One, two, three. And Jesus rose from the dead, conquered sin and death in that moment, and made it possible for us to have purity inside of us. No longer would we have to go through some other priest. No longer would we have to go bathe ourselves in a mikvah to be ceremonially clean, become before God in the temple. He was going to put it right inside of us. And when we believe in him, he purifies us from the inside out. Not that it just happens all at once and you suddenly become a perfect person. At least not that I've met yet. And I've met a lot of people. But it's a gradual thing that happens over time. As we confess our sins to him, he cleanses us. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. It's like we have a private mikvah inside of us. A place where we can go for purity. Not, not that's us ourselves, but what God does in us. A place that we can go to be purified and cleansed. And who does the cleansing? It's not us. It's not us, right? Who does the cleansing in this verse? It's Jesus. He is faithful. And he will cleanse us from our wickedness. See, a lot of people put a whole lot of effort into trying to be really good before God, to try to make themselves somehow pure. Maybe if I can just do enough good to offset my bad, that'll make me pure. It doesn't work that way. If you want to make an omelet and you put three good eggs in there and one rotten egg, do you have a good omelet? All it takes is one bad one. One bad thing spoils the whole thing. You can't be good enough to be pure. Pure means totally pure, 100% totally pure. There's nothing we can do. And Jesus is the one that does the cleansing, not us. We spend so much effort sometimes, and I'm not just talking about people who do not follow Jesus. I'm talking also about people who follow Jesus, who, who spend so much time and energy and effort and have so much anxiety over trying to somehow fix the brokenness in their life, fix the uncleanness in their life, and they work really hard at it. And the whole time, Jesus is there saying, hey, that's my job. You're just supposed to confess it to me, surrender it to me. That's what I want to do in you. It's like a, a bubbling stream of living water within you. You bring it to me, and I will purify you. I will cleanse you from the inside out. See, what was ritual became practical. What was once exclusive and difficult became open and freely available. What had been seen as a rule was now a source of freedom, thanks to what Jesus did for us. So here's the big question. If ritual bathing, that practice that happened in the mikvah, ended with Jesus when he puts that source of living water within us, why do we still baptize with water? Or let me put it to you this way. What does baptism mean to us today? Water baptism. What does that mean? Here's what we have to understand about Jesus. Jesus doesn't just throw everything out. He doesn't just get rid of everything. Sometimes he repurposes things. He upcycles them. He gives them a new meaning. 
He takes things that maybe didn't have the same purpose before and gives them a new purpose for the future. So ritual bathing in living water was incredibly significant when Jesus came to this earth. But then Jesus said, I'm going to do that, but at the heart level inside of you. I'm going to do that for real inside of you at the heart level. But here's what happened, and this gets a little bit complicated, so stay with me. Stay real close here. John the Baptist, the man who went around baptizing people in water, telling them Jesus was going to come, this is what John the Baptist said about Jesus. This is going to start to pull things together. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 says this, I baptize with water, John's speaking here, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit and with fire, not with water. John is making a distinction here. John is saying, I baptize with water. That's good. Someone's coming who's way greater, who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's a whole lot better. Baptize with water the Spirit. When we talk about baptism today and when you read baptism throughout the New Testament in the Bible, we have to understand that we're talking about two different baptisms. There's a baptism of water and there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit that John talked about. When you trust in Jesus, he gives you his Holy Spirit. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you have the spiritual equivalent of living water bubbling up within you at that point from that that point on. You have a source of purity right there that you can go to and say, I confess and Jesus will cleanse you. Water baptism for us today is a public declaration of a spiritual baptism that has already happened. Water baptism points to that spiritual baptism that already happened in our hearts. And this is where Easter comes in. Because water baptism is also a public acknowledgement or a public testimony of everything that Jesus did when he died on the cross, was buried, and rose back again to life. Baptism points us back to that. Let me show you how in Colossians chapter 2. Paul says, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. So there was physical circumcision. Now he's saying this is spiritual. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. That was when you came to Christ. And then in the next verse, he says, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. He's talking here of spiritual baptism. You were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. He's talking about a spiritual baptism here. He's saying, when you trusted in God, you were baptized. When you trusted in the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead, you were buried with Christ and you were raised to new life. You have new life. That is a spiritual baptism. The old self, dead and buried. A new self rising up out of that baptism. Not the water baptism, but the spiritual baptism. But Jesus also wanted his followers to be baptized in water. Why? When we're baptized in water, we symbolize two very important things. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, and the death, the burial, and the resurrection of us, spiritually. It's those two things that we are pointing to when we do a water baptism. That's why sometimes you'll hear when a pastor or someone will baptize someone and they'll put them under water, hopefully very gently, and then they bring them up out of the water, they put them down and they say, buried with him in baptism. It's pointing to that time when Jesus 
was buried, when he died and was buried, and to the fact that our old self is buried with him. So buried with him in baptism, our old self buried. Raised to walk in newness of life, a lot of people will say. Now, there's nothing magical about those words. You don't have to say those words, but this is where they come from. It ties everything together so that our water baptism points back to our spiritual baptism, old life gone, new life, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The ritual bathing or baptism of Jesus' time, of Judaism, looked forward to a time when God would make people ultimately pure. But our water baptism today looks back to a time when we were made pure by Jesus, when we trusted in him, our spiritual baptism, and when Jesus made it possible for us to become spiritually pure because of what he did on the cross and when he rose from the dead. That is what's behind the baptism that we do today. It points to those two things. Which leads us to an interesting question. Should I be baptized? Have you ever been baptized? Let's talk about both kinds here. Probably many of you have trusted in Jesus, and some of you who have trusted in Jesus may not have ever been baptized like this because maybe you just didn't know the significance of it. Why do we even do this strange practice? I've just never gotten around to it, never felt like I needed to. Well, now you understand the history and the context and why Jesus said, hey, I want you to continue this practice, but a little bit differently, pointing back to what I did for you. Not to somehow make yourself clean before God. That's not what this does. But to testify to the fact that you are now clean before God. Sometimes we say it's a public declaration of an inner transformation. That's what water baptism does for us. Jesus said that when you practice communion, when we take communion, the bread and the, and the juice, we are announcing his death until he comes back. That's what Jesus said. Well, in the same way, when we are baptized in water, we are announcing, we are proclaiming the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, and the fact that he's done that for us. The fact that he has given us new life in Christ. So should you be baptized? Well, if you have trusted in Jesus, if you follow him, you believe in him, you believe in what he did on the cross, and you have never been baptized, then I would say, yeah, you probably should. There's no time limit on that, but it's something that Jesus said that he wanted us to do, so why wouldn't we do it? And if that's you and you've never done that, you're going to have an opportunity next week, if you're going to be here, you can sign up at efree.org baptism, and we would love to have you be a part of our very next baptism service so that you, now knowing the history behind it, can proclaim to everyone and say, hey, I believe that Jesus did this for me. I, I believe that he died, he was buried, he rose again, and I now have new life in him. But I want to talk to one more group of people who may be here, and before I do this, I'm going to ask you to do one more weird thing that we like to do in church sometimes, and that is to just close your eyes, Nobody looking around anywhere, just close your eyes. I'm not going to pray just yet, but with what I'm about to share, it can be a little bit personal, and so I just don't want any distractions. Just listen and ask God to reveal what's in your heart. There could be some people here who have never had a spiritual baptism, who have never asked Jesus to save them, to apply his payment for their life, for their debt with God to stop trying to do anything on their own to become pure before him and recognize that only he can make them pure. Listen, Jesus really did come to this earth 2,000 years ago. 
He really did live here. He really did die on a cross. Incredibly public execution with many, many witnesses. Over 500 witnesses testified to this. He really did rise from the dead. We're not going to get into it today, but there's more evidence for this than just about any event in human history. It's amazing. For thousands of years, people have tried to find out how can they have a connection with God. And Jesus is there saying, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I want to put living water inside of you so you can be pure, not because of anything you do, but because of what I did for you. So my question to you is simply this. Again, eyes are still closed. Just think to your own heart. If you've never done this, do you want that new life that Jesus offers for you? If you do, I'm I'm going to tell you it's very simple. It's a conversation between you and God where you say, Lord, I confess the fact that there's nothing good in me. I am not pure. I am a sinful person. You can pray that to him right now and just say, God, I, I am a sinful person. I acknowledge it. There's nothing I can do to be right before you. Lord, would you purify me? Would you save me? I want that spiritual baptism. I want new life in you because I can't do it on my own. I trust in you. I will follow you, Jesus. Let today be the day of your spiritual baptism. Heavenly Father, your word is true. Your word gives life and in more unique ways than we often realize. Thank you for not just your word, but also the testimony of history and archaeology that again and again verifies and and gives credibility to everything you have told us. This concept of living water and that Jesus said he wants to give that living water to us. Lord, help us to live out of that truth, to live out the grace that you have given us as we interact with others and represent you and tell others and proclaim the living water, the spiritual baptism that you have made possible for us. And we'll praise you for all of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.